It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 665 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I've got two great conversations lined up for you this week. Joining me first is Patrick Purvis. Patrick is Chief Revenue Officer, CRO of Discover Org. And following my talk with Patrick is another in my series of my conversations with my partner in crime, Bridget Gleason. Today's show is brought to you in part by our friends at Discover Org. The Discover Org platform is a game changer for sales and marketing professionals. This feature rich sales intelligence platform is supported by over 250 researchers who continually update contact data and provide account specific insights to help sales and marketing teams break ahead of the pack. See the product live at discoverorg.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo. That is discoverorg.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo. Okay, joining me on the first segment of the show this week is Patrick Purvis. As I said, he's the Chief Revenue Officer of Discover Org. And in our conversation this week, we are going to talk about how to scale your high-growth sales team. That is how to hire, how to onboard, how to train, how to develop your sales team in an environment where there are high expectations for growth. This is something that Patrick has experienced firsthand in building the organization at Discover Org. And he's going to share some of his experiences with us today. All right, here we go. Patrick Purvis, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. So um, just before we get started, give us a little bit about your background. I mean, you've you've pretty much, it looks like, been with Discover Org pretty much your entire career. I have, yeah. It was my first uh, sort of real job prior to that. Believe it or not, I played online poker for a (laughs) quasi-living. And uh, And how'd that go for you? Uh, You know, it went decently well. It's why it took me seven years to get through undergrad. Uh, but we had a good time. There was a year there where my roommate and I, who is actually now one of our account executives at Discover Org and uh-huh. our top account executive at right. the moment, uh, we played online poker and we paid our rent doing that and we made decent money. Wow. But uh, there was a day in the online poker world that everybody refers to as Black Friday. And it was April of 2011, I think. And uh, the Department of Justice came in and shut down on the all the online poker sites. So it was never actually legal to play online poker. It was illegal for the sites to operate in the United States. Uh, and so they shut it down. We logged into our accounts like we do on any other day. Message pops up that says, your account's been frozen by the Department of Justice, which is sort of a scary message to see. And we, <laughs> we'd been expecting it you know, for a while, but right. it was a shock for it to finally happen. And it was like, okay, I guess it's time to go get a real job. So I fell into Discover Org. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of a story. I had a client that I was uh, working for for a number of years, and he had an engineer that was sort of a critical engineer, software engineer. And the guy sort of had some productivity issues, and once we sort of dove, in, dove into it, is the guy was you know playing a lot of online poker during work, and then he actually went <laughs> and became a full time professional in Vegas. And I don't know if he's still making his living, but I knew about five years after that he was still making his living playing poker. So. Um, wow, you could have had a different whole different career arc. I could have. I think it was always sort of a means to an end for me, so I'm sort of glad they they ripped the band-aid off. So. <laughs> okay. So you started Discover Org and and I said pretty much have grown up now as chief revenue officer. You want the topics I wanted to get into is during that time you've seen basically all the growth, right? That's right. Yeah, I was the thirty-fifth or so employee. I don't remember exactly. I was the third sales rep. I didn't know anything. I was basically fresh out of school, you know, and uh, they had to teach me how to use Microsoft Outlook even <laughs> to give you an idea. <laughs> uh, so, and then I had to learn this whole technology industry and about the companies that we're selling to, and there are all sorts of tech companies. So there was a, a hell of a lot to learn out of the gates, uh, but I was able to, to sort of wrap my head around it. And over time, the, the company continued to grow really quickly. To be honest, I thought it would be like a resume builder when I first started sure. and I'd be out sure. in a year. Uh, and then I came to f- figure out that we have this great CEO, we've got a, a, an incredible product, and we were growing really quickly. And so over the last seven years, I think I've seen it you know, go from a startup with sort of no real process and very much shooting from the hip to you know, today we're 500 employees, we acquired our biggest competitor, right. we've got a, a really ranking. great sales machine, that's right, ranking. And I think that one of the things I'm most proud of is we've been able to learn from all of the sales and marketing leaders who we sell to and, and take all the best practices to assemble what I think is one of the one of the best SaaS sales teams and machines that, that's out there. So it's been a good ride. All right. Well, it, and it's not over yet. So, 
I want to ask a question about that, that that sort of got triggered, sort of off what I had planned to. But so I just recently I'd written an article saying that the title was basically is, you know, why salespeople don't learn. And yeah, you know, one of my and I'd certainly not my experience alone, as a lot of people say, look, and we have the problem is that companies don't train sales the way they used to, salespeople. And there's a lot more pressure and uh, put on salespeople to sort of be self-learners, learn about you know, the trade, learn about the craft, learn about everything having to do with their customers, you know, whatever they need to learn to become sales ready and sales relevant for relative to their their buyers. And it's it's hard. I mean it's it's we don't get many salespeople as a percentage that you know show the the initiative to go do that. So what what you you know you obviously look like you're self-trained. It's largely based on your your experience. So what did you rely on to train yourself in sales? What do you still rely on to expand your knowledge? I mean, because yes, you're CRO, but yeah, you're only less than ten years into that journey, I believe, right? That's right. Yeah. So plenty to plenty to learn still. Yeah, I mean, I'm forty years into sales, and I've been CRO and VP of sales, a number of companies, and I'm still learning every day. Right. That's why I do this podcast right. so I can talk to smart people like you and learn things. So, so how are you? How did you learn, and how what are you still doing to keep learning? Yeah, I mean, first off, I'll say that I think there's a lot I could brag about at, at, at Discover Org and how we go to market, but, you know, coaching our reps and training them, um, you know, the way salespeople got trained 20 years ago, it was a lot more hands-on, I think. And sure. that's not one of the things I could brag about because we, we haven't done a great job of that. We're starting that this year. We've got a, a finally sort of a true sales enablement leader in place who's put together a coaching program. We're launching Gong scorecards, and we're going to be mm-hmm. tracking the progress. But you know, up until now, it it hasn't been that we've been successful through the process that we put in place and the technology and our our ability to leverage it. But right. in, in terms of my personal growth in sales, I mean, it began with sort of two things. I was fortunate to have two mentors when I started. One was our CEO, mm-hmm. not much older than me, but he right. has a lot more experience. He's been you know sort of in uh, technology since he was twenty one and in this space, um, right. inspirational guy. So I learned a lot from him. And then we were really lucky to hire our number one account executive a month after I started. And he had this background doing real estate sales, but he is just your classic natural born salesperson. So he came into the organization. I remember a month into working at Discover Org, I went to lunch with him. His name's Stephen Warnke. And I, I confided him. I said, you know, I, I think we're really lucky you're here because I don't think these guys know what they're doing when it comes to sales necessarily, but <laughs> he did, right? He just knew it intuitively. Right. He knew how to, to, to sell well. So, um, so I learned a lot from those two, those two guys, uh, really big mentors of mine. It, but then I think the, the biggest thing is we're really fortunate at Discover Org in that our target audience is sales leaders mm-hmm. and marketing leaders. And I have uh, a very intellectual curiosity bent. Um, right. I'm constantly trying to learn more. And so my natural inclination when I got on calls, especially when I didn't understand anything out of the gates, was to just ask a lot of questions and really try to understand people and learn from them. And you know, I, I failed at plenty of sales where I didn't close a deal. But at the very least, even from all of those, I tried to take something away and, and learn something. So a lot of, I think my progress was, you know, in, in, Three years as an account executive, essentially at Discover Org, I probably did two thousand demos of our product, if mm-hmm. not more. And all of those were to salespeople and sales leaders and marketing leaders. And I learned something from every one of those calls. So it was a really accelerated sort of crash course that I was I was very fortunate to get. And so, what do you do now? I mean, are there books you've read? Like, what's the last book you read on not necessarily sales, but something that you felt was beneficial to what you're doing? Yeah, I would say the most influential sales book. That, that I read was the Challenger sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came out sort of a, maybe a year or two after I had started. And right. uh, I think it aligned a lot with how we were thinking about things, but articulated it in a, in a much better way than, mm-hmm. than we had to ourselves. And then the other book actually that I, I, I'm almost finished with is Thinking Fast and Slow. And I think a lot right. of people have read that, but it's, it's really an incredible book that's data-driven psychology. Right. And you can take so many different sales lessons from that book. You know, the concept of anchoring on pricing or there's a million different ideas. I, every day I felt like I'd read a chapter and I would come in and I would be all excited and run into Henry, our CEO's <laughs> office and talk about it to the point where he now gives me uh, crap for 
you know, no matter what idea I have, he's going, did you get that from thinking fast and slow? Is that thinking fast and slow? <laughs> <laughs> well, that is an excellent, but, uh, an, an excellent really book. Good one. Excellent book. It is. Um, yeah. yeah if, afterwards, well, I feel you not sort of the controversy about it, but yeah, it is, it is an excellent book. And, <laughs> sure. and certainly I think this whole concept of, of the system one, system two thinking, if you're a salesperson, understand this, this idea that, you know, people basically want to go with the flow. You know, this is this is our natural inclination. Understanding that as a salesperson versus you know the the cognitive unease or anything calls and so on is, I think those are a framework that everybody should be familiar with. And if, and again, that's one of those things that if we say, look, Mister Salesperson, Ms. Salesperson, you know, we just want you to spend an hour a week. You know, turn off the TV for an hour and listen to a podcast or read a chapter of of Thinking Fast and Slow. And if you know, as I think Brian Tracy, you know, said, you know, if you can read twelve books on your field in a year, you'll be, you know, the top one percent of experts about it. It's such a simple, such a simple task, but it's hard to get people to do it. And I was wondering if you had any insight on how do we, how do we, how do we incent people, how do we motivate people who, unfortunately, in the cases as you talked about, companies don't train the same way they did before. Aren't you know, I spent ten weeks my first year, first twelve months, I spent. 12 weeks, 10 weeks, excuse me, in offsite training, you know, in a classroom. And not, not that classroom training is the answer necessarily, but it's just, you know, profiling the difference. How do we get people to, you know, invest that time? Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't know if I have a, a great answer to it. I mean, I would say one thing is it, it's not even just reading subjects about your or books about your field. I think it's just reading in general. Well, I agree. Yeah, it has 100%. a massive impact on you know your vocabulary, your ability to articulate things, and it's something I I personally uh, like. It rubs me the wrong way every time I read an article about how millennials are different. Like I think people are people are people, mm-hmm. and millennials aren't really any different than the generation before than the generation. Now, the, the world around us is maybe a little different, but. But one thing I will acknowledge is we read less. There's a lot more technology out there. There's and there's a lot more ways to consume content and media. And so my generation, I think, tends to read fewer books than those in the past. And I think that's a shame. Um, and something we should be looking to do is instill a, a love of reading books, not just you know blogs and short articles, but real meaty books into yeah. people. <laughs> and unfortunately, um, tweets for those of us who are hooked on Twitter. Um, <laughs> that's right. And I, yeah. And you know, I don't care if it's, if it's, uh, the latest John Grisham or if it's sci-fi and fantasy, or if it's, uh, uh, you know, twilight, like you if you read these books, you're going to, you're going to get more out of it. You're going to be more articulate. Your vocabulary is going to be improved and all of that helps you think and communicate at an elevated level, which is really central to, to being a good sales professional. So I don't know what the solution is, but I think one of the solutions is really just to get more people reading. Yeah, I mean, I, there was a quote, and I've mentioned this, and so regular listeners probably are tired of hearing me say this, but there's a, a quote that I love. It's one of the few quotes I've had around most of my career, and it'd be great just to sort of put it up on everybody's computer monitor. It's from Thomas Huxley, who was a British writer in the 19th century, and he sure. said, in life, you should try to, I think he was the brother of Aldous Huxley, uh, for a brave new world, but uh, or a relation of somewhat, but he, he said, in life, you should try to Learn something about everything and everything about something. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think that'd be a great watchword if we get salespeople start on that track. So just segueing a bit is, yeah, you know, you've built this team. You wrote this article, uh, let's say an interesting article, sort of evoking Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, to, <laughs> to building a sales team. But very clever. You know, I love it when people you know, go outside sales to, to do things like that. But... You talked about when you start building a team, the first thing you're looking for, more so than your process, is right people, the right people. And you use alternate words, right people and good people. And I'm sort of fascinated by this idea of good people because there's been books written about this in the last couple of years with the premise being start with values and character more than anything else when you're building a team of people. And I'm just wondering what your, your thought is that. And then if you've been thinking about that as you're building your team. Yeah, it's a good question. Um... And actually, I, for me, one of the, the challenging things to interview for, to suss out in a hiring process is values, character, grit, work ethic, mm-hmm. all of those, right? These are, these are more in, in, intangible things that you sort of don't see until you 
get them into the office and then you really see them in, the, in that environment. So it's certainly things to look for, but I would actually say, and you know, this echoes thinking fast and slow, although I started doing this a few years ago, but um, in my mind, interviewing, we, we put far too much stock into the act of an interview and our own subjective assessment of someone's mm-hmm. uh, ability from that interview. I think, right. uh, you know, thinking fast and slow talks about how bad humans are at, at sort of making these types of judgments. And so I tried, I, I, I learned that early on. Uh, I made some bad hires and I realized maybe I'm not so great at hiring, well, but we all, maybe we it's all not have. just me. We all have. That's right. Maybe it's, Right. Maybe it's everybody. And, and from the articles I read and talking to other leaders' experience, it sounded like a pretty pervasive thing. And so I thought, well, how can I take myself somewhat out of the equation? And we stumbled on um, a test that we, there's a, a Washington state government agency in the same building as us, and they were able to offer us this profile uh, test that we could give to our candidates for free. It was both a personality test and then kind of a, a, a cognitive assessment mm-hmm. test, an SAT test, if you will. So we said, okay, let's give this to all of our reps and see if any of this looks predictive of future performance. And we did. And interestingly, the personality side did not correlate really at all to, to performance. There was even qualities you would think, like how assertive are you? You know, it was one of the personality traits. You would think on balance, our reps would be a little more on, the good ones would be a little more on the assertive side. I didn't even really see that showing up. And sure. granted, my sample size wasn't huge at the time. It was maybe 20. Um, but I, there wasn't much of a correlation. Where there was strong correlation was in the SAT test. And that was sort of surprising to me. But the oh, math, and, math verbal, and verbal. Okay. That's right. Math and verbal questions. And people who scored highly on that tended to be doing really well in sales at Discover Org. And I thought, well, why is that? I mean, it, it suggests that they're intelligent, that they're quick learners. Um, you get a lot of benefits out of that, right? You can think on your feet. You understand what the, the other you know, smart people that you're talking to are saying. You understand the nuances of their objections. There's a lot of benefits that come out of just you know, sort of being more intelligent. And then I think you know, math and verbal questions serve as a proxy for that in some ways. And so I said, okay if this is what the data is telling me, let's go out and, and hire for this. And we actually found a test that, uh, from a company called Amia. It takes 15 minutes mm-hmm. to do math and verbal questions. And so you, we well, you, that you dispensed with the personality assessment. We, we dispensed with the personality okay. assessment. All right. Yeah. All right. So just math and, and verbal. So we, okay. we give, that's right. We give that to all of our candidates and those that score highly on it are the only ones I interview. And what I found was in doing that, A, the number of interviews I had to do cut down by a factor of, I don't know, three, four, sure. five. And B, the the quality of the reps we were getting and their uh, tenure and their retention at Discover Award really skyrocketed. So uh, it's something we've relied on ever since. In fact, it's now company-wide. Every department at, this, at our company gives out this Omnia test for all candidates. And it's, it's allowed us to create this really, really intelligent team that, you know, uh, where we get an environment, too, where iron sharpens iron, right? It's smart mm-hmm. people surrounded by smart people at, at all levels of the organization. Um, and I think that's really made a big impact. So as much as I would love to test for, are you, you know, do you have integrity? Are you, uh, are you able to persevere? Are you a hard worker? I, I had I, I won't pretend to have figured out how to do that other than again relying on a subjective interview and asking some questions, but I don't you know know that, that that's great. <laughs> well, I would love some, to find some companies if are doing it. By the way, who offers a, a personality test that can prove to me it's predictive? That's the the key. I haven't yeah. actually found one that they, they can say they claim they demonstrate it's predictive. Right? They all claim. But if are. you can show me that, I'm uh, I'm all ears because I I would love to test for those things as well. Well, what some companies are doing, and this is this is a process that I advocate, is what they're doing is they're doing standard interviews, meaning they have maybe come, somebody come in for a multi-interview, four people they're going to talk to, and everybody asks the exact same question in the exact same order. And then you, ha- you take some of the subjectivity out of it because you've got multiple people hearing the same questions and answers or hearing the same answers to the same questions. And what they're finding is that then helps sort of take some of that subjectivity out of the equation um and and it can be used successfully and i think that that's but you're right it is hard but you can also in that format you can ask questions that are geared to sort of elicit something about value and characters but again there's still subjectivity in there you you know people's emotions are are tied to that there's no no getting around that 
That's so, right. If it's a good salesperson, you're you're interviewing. Hopefully, they're able to convince you they have it. You know, sort of regardless, well, right? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, no. I mean, that's so you you raised that point though. It's, you know, the people that tested assertive weren't necessarily the ones that correlated to being good reps. And I think this is another sea change that that people have to really acknowledge that needs to be going on in sales. If it's not going on, I know in some places it is. Is that you know those old obsolete words we use you know hunter assertive aggressive blah blah blah. yeah aren't predictive of success in sales yep i mean i've never once had a customer in 40 years of selling pick up the phone and call me and say andy you know could you send out a new rep because this guy's just not salesy enough (laughs) you know no no one's ever done that that's that's never occurred so um the other thing I was going to ask you about is, is, and this is another concept that's coming into not just sales, but you're seeing employment in general, especially in high growth companies, is how do you, how do you create your objectives for a slot, the non-quota objectives for when you have a new position open? And you're seeing some talk of this. Reed Hoffman talks about this in his book, uh, but growing is that you know, they tend to look at jobs as sort of, hey, here's a two-year slot. Right, because we're at this stage in our growth, and we know for the next two years we'll be here. So we want somebody that can handle this assignment, and that's not just generating X amount of revenue, but maybe it's penetrating these type of accounts because you know we're in that that we're in the transition from going SMB to enterprise or whatever you know the company is going through. So how do you how do you sort of define objectives for an open sales role before you start going through the process of hiring? Well, for us, we're we're perhaps in a bit of a fortunate and unique position in that we've built a really great feeder system in our ability to hire SDRs, mm-hmm. usually fresh out of college or with one or two years of experience, uh, keep them on the job and train them really for a year, uh, on average, a little over a year maybe, and then promote them into account executive positions. Because we've been growing quickly, we've been able to hire a lot of SDRs, but we've also had a consistent need for additional account executives mm-hmm. or additional customer success managers. Some of them transition onto that side of the house. And and that's given us a really great career path. Um, so, um, you know, they, in, in talking to the SDRs about what that looks like for them, you know, I'll say, here's what we're looking for when, when we're looking to promote SDRs into these new roles. Number one is, are you hitting your numbers? That is important. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not hitting your numbers, it's, it, it, there's an issue there that we need to solve for first. So are you hitting your numbers? <clears throat> number one. Uh, number two, so also are you, now we're going to start getting into more of the intangibles, you know, in, in getting promoted. Are you uh, a, a pleasure to work around? Does the team like working with you? Cause it's just a lot more fun to work with good people than it is with assets. Right. right? So, well, um, so, you, so you have a standard for what a good person is. Yes. But I mean, I'm just saying we, we often don't know what it is if they're a good person until they're hired. You know what I mean? I know. But if you had to go look at the people you have and say, okay, these people are good people. What are the common traits in your organization for what constitutes a good person? Sure. Uh, well, actually, two of the other qualities I'll, I'll speak to in terms of promotions, I think, are them. One is, um, do you help the people around you you know, get better? Um, so are, are you self-serving solely? And some salespeople are. And that's not always necessarily a bad thing to be self-interested. In fact, being self-interested isn't a bad thing at all in my mind. But it, you know, are you paying it forward? You had people help you mm-hmm. get to where you are. Are you helping those around you right. and, and elevating their, their game as well? That's something that we're looking for. Uh, and then number uh, sort of four on this list is, do you have good ideas? Um, we have an open organization, relatively flat hierarchy. Uh, SDRs walk into our CEO's office when they have ideas. They walk into my office mm-hmm. when they have ideas. A lot of those ideas get put into place right away if they're good ones. And, and we're an experimental organization. You know, it's a, it's a cliche to say we have a bias towards action, but if someone has an idea, we think it's good, we're going to try it, we'll mm-hmm. run with it. A lot of those ideas turn out not to be good and we'll drop them, but we keep the ones that are and, and that's how we evolve sure. and get better. Um, so all that to say, are, you know, are you someone who's contributing ideas and thinking about the business maybe beyond your role? And, and all of those qualities suggest that you're you know, ready for the next level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that could be moving into an account executive role because those attributes play well in working with your customers and understanding right. their challenges, but also, you know, beyond that into management roles. Got it. Love it. 
So the last, last thing you talked about was, uh, and you, this, you just referred to that when you're talking about an experimental organization, and it's always sort of interesting to get people's perspective because there's sort of two camps people fall into is one is, you know, I'm going to set up a process and master my process, and then the people just become sort of interchangeable parts in that process, you know, sort of a la Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots, right? They had a lot of success with that versus sure. sort of the, what you were talking about in your article, which is let's find the right people. Let's worry about the right people. Let's get good people first. We'll let the process figure it out. If we have the right people, they'll figure that out. I mean, are you still sort of on that track? I mean, I would say it begins with the right people, yes, but uh, I, I, to a certain extent, I would hope that we can claim that the system we've built, you know, is one that that can withstand uh, new players and, and change um, because that's going to be ever present in the mm-hmm. business. So, you know, I would, I, I think I would be proud if we were compared to uh, Bill Belichick, you know, and the, and yeah. the Patriots and the system that he's built. Uh, I actually think that that's something we've done really well at Discover Org. So we bring in smart people and they help us architect and refine and optimize that system. But the system is sort of a, a, a very central thing at Discover Org. Uh, you know, we from the, the machine we've built of 2,000 inbound leads a month coming to inbound reps, converting those at 40% to demos to our outbound reps generating the other half of um, our pipeline to mm-hmm. our account executive doing three new demos a day, uh, handing off to a customer success team. I mean, it's just this very well-oiled machine. Uh, so, so you know, maybe it's it, it's a cop-out, but maybe half and half, you know, equally important, right? Smart people to, to continue to, to run the system, but um, you can change smart people and, and the system won't fall apart. Yeah, well, I mean, you you reached a certain point of maturity where that should be the case, right? But um, yeah, yeah. But I like the emphasis on hiring the right people. This is it's not not enough attention is paid to, especially in small, mid sized enterprises. Yeah, it's a painful process. People want to short short circuit it all the time. Um, but it's I interesting that. that you use that that math and, and verbal assessment. Is it equally balanced between math and verbal, or is one more than the other? No, it's essentially equally balanced. Okay. The the way that tests. The outputs is it gives it tells you on what percentile did this person score on verbal, what percentile did they score on math, and what percentile did they score overall. We look at the overall score. Okay. Our threshold is you need a, a, above a 70th percentile to even be interviewed, uh, and then we're biased towards sort of higher scores. And, and have you changed that? Because in your article you said 80. percent Oh yeah, we did. Uh, <laughs> we did end up lowering it a little bit okay. actually. All right. Was it because you couldn't find enough people that could score 80? Uh, yes. Basically, yes. All right. Interesting. Well, there was an interesting article that was out in the New York Times within the last couple of years about a a research done by a professor at Yale about interviews and talking about, you know, predictiveness or predictiveness of certain factors. And what they found is that they they took two groups of people and ran them. One, they just hired them surely on the basis of their GPA. And then another group hired them through a conventional interview methodology. People they selected with just the GPA that was more predictive of success than the interviews. So, yep. yeah, that's that why it's me at all. yeah, that's why yeah, kudos to you guys for uh, sticking with that because that's that's an important data point. So yeah, you know, you, you mentioned how people will shortcut the uh, the hiring process, and I think one of the the temptations is you meet someone you think they're okay, and because interviewing is painful, and if you do a lot of it, it gets painful quickly. Yes you decide to hire people rather than interview two more candidates. It's like just interview more people before you make a decision, go through more candidates before you make a decision. I think that would make them actually a, a monumental change in the quality of people we hire. But I think a lot of us interview two, three people and we go, okay, I got my best. Like I, I just did a search for a VP of enterprise sales. I interviewed over 30 people and I, I was exhausted with those interviews. But now the guy we got, he started this week, Christian Prussia, I'm convinced was the exact right guy and he's perfect. And I wouldn't have found him or known that unless I'd done uh, 30 interviews. He was the 26th, you know, or something. Very interesting. Well, right. So you were patient and you waited until you found what you were looking for, which again, most people short circuit that and yeah, it's like I have a syndrome. I call it the love at first sight syndrome. And yeah, you look good in a suit. You speak well. Okay. You look like you could represent the company well. Yeah, I'm tired of this. Sure. Come on. And that leads to disaster more often than not. All right. Patrick, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but um, 
thanks very much. That was a great, great conversation. Absolutely. Great. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you later. See you, Andy. Thank you, Patrick. Again, that was Patrick Purvis. Patrick is Chief Revenue Officer of Discover Org. Join me next, as always at this time, is my friend who many of us know as Captain Fantastic. We're talking about Bridget Gleason. Bridget is Vice President of Sales at Logs.io. Now, today, Bridget and I are going to talk about how to increase your close rates in sales. My research is finding that B2B close rates are falling. And it's really, you know, a tough situation because close rates, increasing your close rates, is really key to increasing your sales productivity. And some companies are sort of getting in the habit of ignoring the close rate. They're not paying as much attention to it because they've got sort of this bountiful flow of leads coming at the top of their sales funnel. As long as they close a certain percentage and hit their targets, they're great. But what happens if you don't always have the same lead flow? And actually, in many cases, it's less expensive to increase your close rate than to spend money on generating more lead flow. Anyway, there's trade-offs there, but there's something we're going to talk about today. So let's jump into it. Bridget, how are you doing? Andy, Andy, Andy. I'm doing super fantastic. <laughs> super Great. fantastic. Super fantastic. No complaints. All good. The weather's turning here in beautiful Boston. So I think it's spring. Super <laughs> spring. Enjoy it for a week because next week it's going to be in the 90s and it's going to be summertime. That's fine. I'll take it. I don't know. I'll I take wanted, it. I wanted a little spring out east here. Well, you know what? I take what we get. True, true. Well, that's true. <laughs> you, you don't escape, you, you don't escape you know as often as I do. <laughs> when well, the weather's bad, I just leave. Yeah. I know. Lucky you. Well, this is also, um, I can't do anything about it, so I might as well. That's very zen. Yeah, it's a, it's a recipe for more um, happiness. Um, yes, it's a recipe for more happiness. Cool. I like it. For like sure. it. Like it. All right. So, um, yeah, today I thought I'd get in something right up your right up your alley. Uh oh. What? Running? Reading? No. Oh. <laughs> Work Uh-oh. actually. We could talk about running. Oh. Okay. No, we 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 get off on those tangents. Yeah. What is it? So so I'd written about this recently. As as I had a just two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago I had a conversation with a CRO, Chief Revenue Officer of a well known SaaS company. A fast-growing cat, fast company, a fast-growing SaaS fast company. Okay, say that uh-huh. ten times real quickly, and and it, it was really sort of a interesting conversation. Not necessarily a pleasant one in terms of. I mean, it was very friendly, but in terms of sort of thinking about after the fact, is that is that? And you and I have talked about this issue before on the show. Is is so a conversation sort of started with me asking him, okay, well, how are you going to? You know, plan to sort of keep up your growth and and so on. And because I said I and I was willing to guess, and I I guessed. I said, "Hey, well, I figure your close rate's about twenty percent out of your pipeline." He confirmed that it was after wondering how I knew that, but <laughs> it's like the same for everybody in SaaS. So, um, I said, "Well, you know, based on that, I was I wasn't sure they were able to be able to scale the way he thought." And he just sort of, eh, "What do you know?" type thing. And he said, because he was pretty confident, because you know he had this robust machine he had built to fill the top of the funnel, and you know all I have to do is fill the top of the funnel and sprinkle on some SDRs and grow. And and I thought, well, geez, that seemed really expensive. Why haven't you thought about instead of adding more expensive people, just figure out how you could increase your close rate from twenty percent to twenty one percent, or from twenty one percent to twenty two, and then you know so on up to. Yeah, you know, something that's that's a more sustainable close rate, like you know, twenty five or thirty percent. And it hadn't even occurred to him. So, like of all the levers at at his command, the ones that he was you know resorting to are the ones that were sort of the brute force numbers oriented, as opposed to those that are to really have to do with selling. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, here we have. CRO of a very well-known company who really doesn't want to sell, right? Just wants to fill the top of the funnel. Does uh, does this CRO uh, is is he or she also responsible for marketing? No. Okay. No, they have a, a VP of of marketing. Sometimes the VP marketing's report into CROs. Oh, um, good question. I don't know the answer to that one. 
So it's possible. But but I just thought, wow. I mean, for me, that just struck me for all my years building sales teams, building sales, you know, companies going from zero to hundred million plus. Yeah. I, the close rate was always a really important and also a, one of the least expensive ways you know, to try to scale your business as opposed to adding more people at the, at the top of the funnel. Um, you know, if I could just change that one part of the equation, but what was most disconcerting was about the fact that it wasn't really even considered as one of the options. Uh, yeah, I think that's amazing. Uh, I, I'm surprised by that. But it's not the only time I've had that conversation. I well, mean, I, I think maybe because it's really easy <clears throat> for sales, <clears throat> excuse me, sales to look at marketing and say, just give me more. If you just gave me more leads, better leads. And it's really easy for marketing folks to say, well, if you would just uh, close the ones we give you. So that, to me, seems like just a really old, stale argument. You know? Well, well but yeah, I know that. And I, so, but he wasn't – that's funny. He wasn't making the argument that marketing needed to give him more leads because he thought, hey, we've got this machine that's generating as many leads as I can – my my limitation was not enough SDRs to handle all the leads coming in. And so I was just going to hire a bunch more SDRs. And it's like, well, okay. But you can only do that to a certain point. I mean, at some point you have to start closing business. And this idea well, that – that, And the idea that, that that really, if you're in sales, that you really wouldn't focus on you know, how to become – more effective and productive actually closing a higher fraction of your supposedly most qualified leads. Because, you know, to me, it's like, gosh, we, if you really have a, a 20% close rate, then arguably what you're saying is we really don't have a very good product market fit. Uh, I, I don't know that that's true. It really depends on who you're bringing in at the top of the funnel. Because you can bring in a whole bunch of unqualified and your close rate's going to go down and sure. you can have fewer and they, so. But if, but if marketing is tasked with. It depends on what they're tasked with. Well, but let's assume it's a, it's a mix of marketing and sales. They're doing the proactive outbound or, you know, doing the top of the funnel activities. Yeah. I still make that case that, that if over a period of time, and this is a company that's been in business for close to 10 years is if over that period of time you haven't been able to refine your product market fit to the point where you're not having to bring so much crap in the top of the funnel in order to winnow out those that you can actually close, that again, maybe your your product market fit is not aligned at some point. I, I, I don't know that I would necessarily assume that. And I think just because I've you know been around the block a couple of times, more times than I'd like to admit. And sometimes there are there are philosophies and where marketing brings in just a ton, they cast a really, really wide net. Mm-hmm. And then they use an SDR team as the filter. Sure. Well and a bad filter at best. But yes, go ahead. Well, why a bad filter? Well, because if you're only closing one of five out of your supposedly most qualified prospects, I would say that's but, yeah, a poor but, filter. But, <clears throat> What, why, like, I don't, I. Uh, so, who's not qualifying the prospect? Because, I mean, I, I think by well, any measure, by any measure, it? I think no, a 20% close rate is bad. But, but why are you, you can't assume that the ones that are coming in at the top are all qualified prospects? No, I, I, I didn't. I was saying just the opposite is that, that they're not paying enough attention to, Trying to bring in more targeted, they're just, as you said, they're well, cast, they're true. casting they're casting that's a wide true. net, but that's true. Too, but too high a fraction of them are making their way down into the entire sales process, and and they're not being they're not being and they're not being filtered out. out, right? Okay, I agree. Okay, I missed your point, which isn't the first time. No, no, yeah, no, I but, mean, if that's yeah, I agree. No, they need to. The, the reason to have them there as a filter is so that the crap doesn't go. You're not wasting the AE's time. And then you'd, um, yeah, and then you would want to have a, and expect the close rate to go higher. And and so I think it, you know, you also have to look at what are you measuring 
close rates? Is it lead to close? Is it MQL to close? Is it opportunity to close? Is it sales accepted to close? Is sales qualified to close? There's a lot of different ways to look at it. When I think about it, what I care about and what I'm focused on Mm -hmm. is what happens when it comes to one of my, somebody on my team and they say, this is qualified. And then I think it's the job of a, a sales, a sales rep, a sales manager, a sales director, a VP of sales, a CRO, whomever is to work within that with work within the sales funnel and the sales stages to how do we increase the conversions at each and every step. That's, Mm -hmm. That's our job. But it doesn't seem to be happening the way it should. And I think that it seems like there's just been this, at least again in the SaaS sector, it seems like there's been this acceptance of, um, yeah, you know, it's it's 20% off from our qualified opportunities in our pipeline to, and it's like, if we, as, long as, we, you know, as long as we get enough coming in the top of the funnel, we'll just play the numbers game. But at some point, yeah, nobody deals with infinite markets, right? I mean, markets of infinite size. At some point, you can't have the same volume coming into the top of the funnel. And then you find yourself stuck because you really don't know how to, at that point, then really winnow out and close the really good prospects. So it's just, it's just this conundrum that I think that, that many companies are facing is that, yeah, the numbers game works great at a certain, you know, it's a hard game. Yeah, at a certain certain phase of your your growth curve, you know, assuming it's somewhat like a you know a bell curve. But at some point, you got to put a premium on that f- execution with the customer. You know, discovery qualification, make sure they're really a fit for what you're selling, and then close a higher fraction of them. Yeah, and I think I certainly ascribe to that sort of philosophy. I think there's, I think sales in a way is always a numbers game. It's just sure. how big are those numbers that you're dealing with. And boy, I think it's hard if you're continually tasking uh, the marketing team to just bring in more and more and more and more. Um, y- you're going to get scorched earth. I-, I don't know. I think you're going to get a lot of low quality and then you are going to need a bigger SDR team. Yeah. Well, I think that's what's happening for many companies already. Yeah, yeah it's 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 um, it's also almost as if people are saying, "Look, the way this works now is the way it's always going to work." <laughs> and you and I have been through and have been in the business long enough to know that I don't know how many sales quote unquote revolutions have you and I personally experienced during the course of our careers. I mean, yeah. numerous, right? And this is just one more. And this is surely going to change. It's in the process of changing already, but it's surely going to change. And you know, I think for for me, the the message is to sales managers, CROs, and so on is, you know, it's tempted to sort of follow this recipe, but this the world's changing as we speak, and that's just not the recipe isn't sustainable for the way many companies have it set up. I think that's I I think that's true. I think. I would say that sales professionals and CROs and uh, VPs of sales, we're all trying to figure it out relative to the market we're in and how people want to be sold to. It just There's a lot of dynamics at play, which is what I love about it. I love that it's not the same. Mm-hmm. So I think to me that's what's fun about it is that you get to continue to innovate and think about new ways to do things. And it really helps to have a strong marketing partner, kind of a strong go-to-market team, because we share a funnel. And I think the tighter that alignment, the easier it is to figure these things out and also the more uh, more effective. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that, that oh, just... A greater sense of the fact that you actually are in sales, and you know, I know we've we all are participating in this increased mechanization of the sales process. But at the end of the day, you're still selling to a person, and 
I was talking to another uh, VP of sales within the last couple of weeks and you know, a similar business model to the one I referred to up front. And yeah, you know, his explanation for low close rate was too much competition. But yeah, my thought first thought was you could have to go through the conversation was, well, yeah, but based on the conversation, you really don't have a handle on your discovery and your qualification processes. And so, yeah, it's easy to write off, you know, the fact that they you know, were suffering because of competition, but competition's a fact of life. You always have competition. But if you you know, really don't focus on, you know, what what do we have to do during the discovery to find out whether this is, in fact, a prospect that we could qualify, that could actually be a good fit for our product and service. And it's just like the level of attention to that was so low that, you know, we didn't even get into the conversation about how they really qualified prospects. Do you think this has changed over time or do you think this is kind of always the way that it's been? Well, I think we're, I think it's changed a bit, and I think and I think that's just because you know given given the tools at our disposal, I think we you and I both say, look, there's been while well, sales has always been a numbers game at root, right? Is and you need to know what your your ratios are. It's there's been a greater emphasis placed on it in the last five plus years, and yeah, that's not not beneficial. I mean, it certainly has a role. You're never going to escape the numbers, but but at some point, yeah, you got to focus on on that, you know, discovery, the human to human aspect of you know, really understanding whether somebody's really a fit for what you're selling, and be willing to say, look, they're not a fit, and maybe we don't have the same pipeline coverage, but we're going to close a much higher fraction of our pipeline and arrive at the same spot. But instead, I think there's been all these metrics laid on top of of managers these days that create behaviors that aren't aligned with the whole idea of closing a higher fraction of your prospects. Uh, That hasn't been my experience, let's say, where I am now. I think everybody would be delighted. And in fact, we're starting, we hired a CMO recently and it's interesting that we're having this conversation because part of our strategy just with marketing kind of the SDR team in sales is, hey, let's take a more targeted approach. Let's look at a smaller number of accounts that mm-hmm. we think are really good for Logs.io mm-hmm. and go a little wider, a little deeper, and really work on getting into these different sets of accounts and There'll be a higher sales price, higher ARR, mm-hmm. and yeah, maybe we'll close fewer of them, but it's it's more sustainable. Yeah, surprise. <laughs> yeah, I know you know that. I mean, I you are you are one of the enlightened ones, but uh, I don't know if I'm enlightened. Maybe I'm one of the lazy ones. Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I think that that I think it's lazy to do what what I talked about before. I mean, I think. Just trying to fill the top of the funnel and be satisfied with the relatively low close rate. I think that's that's lazy. I think it's harder to say, look, to do what you're talking about is let's let's be more targeted. Let's go a little deeper, raise our price a bit, and we're going to close a higher fraction of the people that come through because, by definition, they're going to be more well qualified for what we're trying to sell. That's harder. It takes more work. The payoff is greater at the end, though. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I would. I don't know which one is. I don't know if I know which one is more work. I just know for me, I, uh, it, it suits my style. I think I'm, I'm just because not you like a, to sell. I do. And see, and I don't think I, that, do. I think that's part of the, I do. That's part of the thing with, with quite frankly, with a lot of the sales managers that, you know, I was referencing is they really don't like to sell. Not in the way that you came up selling, which is amazing to me. But they like the idea of a process and sort of a machine. But you know, getting their hands dirty with customers and actual you know hand-to-hand selling, not so much. It's funny because it's one of the things that I love about my role and why I gravitate towards smaller companies mm-hmm. is because I love the hands-on piece. I like 
I, I, I like being in it. Even in this time that we've been talking, I've been pinged three times by reps wanting wanting my input on deals. Wanting Captain that. Fantastic to come that's be right. fantastic. I love it. And that's what I love. That's that's what I think is for me, that's that's why I'm in this job. But people are different. There are some, but there I mean you've I'm sure met them. There are I a lot do. of sales managers that it's all about process. It's numbers. They sit in an office, they look at spreadsheets, they go through Salesforce. That's what they do. Yep. <laughs> oh, I know that's that's the type of person I was talking about. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not like everything in life. It's not all one or the other. No, yeah, it's, it's not at all. Yeah, it's finding the balance. And I, my point really was that it's sort of out of whack right now. We need to find that balance again. So, um, yeah, I know you got a you got a split on this one. So we'll we'll talk to you next week. Another. Another episode. Another Looking episode. This is, this is 137 for us. Gosh, where's the time gone? I know. We have to stop meeting this way. I All know. right. So Don't tell your wife. <laughs> yeah, she knows. She actually listens. This is her. I love it. She listens. She reports every time. So, all right. Captain Fantastic. We will talk to you next week. Friends, thank you for joining us and look forward to talking to you again next Until week. Until well. next Wacky Wednesday. Or whatever we decided to call it. Still haven't. I'm falling down on the All job. Right. I'm sorry. Wiley Wednesday. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, friends. That was Accelerate for this week. First of all, I want to thank you for joining me, as always. Appreciate your support. I want to thank my guests, Patrick Purvis and my good friend, Bridget Gleason. Join me again next week as I welcome Tom Poland. Tom is the CEO of Leadsology, and he'll be joining us on the show. And of course, no Accelerate would be complete without swapping stories with Bridget. As always, she'll be joining me for our weekly conversation, so be sure to join us then. So thanks again to our sponsor, Discover Org, for their ongoing support of Accelerate. And thanks again for joining me. Until next week, good selling, everyone. <laughs>